starting at chapter 11. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Thank you, Millie. Good morning, folks. Welcome along if you're new or visiting. It's really lovely to see a few people coming back, in fact, for uh, maybe after Christmas holidays, New Year's breaks, people are filtering back in and hopefully we see it um, continue to pour in over the next couple of, uh, couple of weeks and months. Um, it is good to be back in uh, Luke, or sorry, to still be in Luke, and we're going to be looking at that passage today, so keep your Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, you do now, because I just put out the new ones today. We've got a, a new stack of Bibles there each week. If you come along and you don't bring one, uh, sorry, if you didn't, didn't bring yours, grab one and borrow it. If you don't have one, write your name in that one and it's yours. We want everyone to have God's Word in front of them all the time. So uh, please do that. But how about we um, pray, and then let's dive straight into this passage. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for it, uh, the encouragement to pray. And we pray, actually, that today we would realize the significance and the, uh, the great privilege of prayer and that we might actually use it in a way that is God-honoring and good. We pray for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to start with something that I'm personally convinced of. See if you agree. It's not a, an outstanding statement by any stretch, but it's just this. It's, it's this. At, at bottom... Regardless of whether people are religious or atheist or agnostic, at bottom, everybody prays. I don't mean that everybody sort of sets aside a special time every day, uh, a genuflex and then addresses God specifically. That's not what I'm talking about. All I mean is that everybody at some point in their life, either instinctively or reflexively, finds themselves uttering out loud words that very much mimic the concept of prayer. Even when it's not addressed to anyone in particular, even when it's just a sort of a shouting to the air. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. It might be the, uh, the pseudo prayer of lament or confusion when something goes wrong. It's the kind of, why is this happening? Why me? Why now? Or it's heard in the times of crisis, when the plane is falling out of the sky, so to speak. What do people uncontrollably, cry? at least on all the movies, that's the only sort of experience I've had with planes falling out of the sky, but it's always, help, help me, save me. You know what I'm talking about? 
even when they think there's no one there that can actually respond to answer. It happens in the moment after you've made a critical error, the one that you only know about. When you've made an error of judgment and when the weight of your mistake is about to come crashing down on your head, what do you say, often out loud? It's, what have I done? Or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, even though there's no one apparently around to hear you. It's also seen in those moments of relief. It's the kind of prayer, so to speak, a prayer of praise on the lips of even the most ardent atheists, the moment that the lost little boy is found. Now, what's the phrase you hear on the news reports of people in those moments, time and time again, it's, thank God they found him. Thank God he's okay. Even when people actively disavow the notion of God in every other arena of life, it's at moments like these that people find themselves wanting to express thanks to a higher being or a higher cause or a higher purpose, even when they don't have the first clue of who that is. It's the same kind of thanks or praise that people offer when they look at a magnificent sunset and you just stop and you just look and you just feel incredibly small somehow at the moment. And there's a a notion of, wow, who do I have to thank for this magnificent masterpiece in front of me? Because And people do this because everyone at bottom instinctively or reflexively is a prayer. Now, you might think that's a good thing. You might say, that's a real leveler of a point of human unity, of solidarity. Oh, isn't that great? Everyone prays. We're all the same. doesn't matter who do you pray to as long as you pray. And everyone prays, so we're all okay. Whoa, no. Lightning, I thought for a minute there. No. Now, acknowledging that everyone prays is like acknowledging that everyone is a worshipper. What I mean by that is everyone's a worshipper. Everyone places something at the very top of their life's purposes and they sacrifice other things in service or pursuit of that goal or that purpose or that little G God. Everyone's a worshipper. It could be anything from fame to family to money to comfort, reputation or even just rank individualism. Everyone is a worshipper. Everyone is pursuing something as their highest priority. But that does not make all worship good. Does not make all worship healthy. Does not make all worship worth copying. I mean, the obvious example of that is ancient cultures, many ancient civilizations practiced child sacrifice as a part of their worship rites. As a means of apparently securing their God's favor in their, you know, crops or ironically fertility. The Babylonians, the Aztecs, the Incas, the Canaanites, just to name a few. In fact, you could argue the trajectory of today's abortion laws are a disgraceful modern equivalent of child sacrifice on the altar of feminism to the God of autonomy and alleged equal rights. What I mean is, though everyone is a worshipper at heart, not all worshipping is God-honouring or good. And likewise, with the prayer, not all prayer is God-honouring or good. But there is good news here, I want to say. There's good news here because in our passage today from Luke, we hear that Jesus came to set both of these instinctive human aspects on the right path. Because when it comes to worship in prayer, you don't have to make this stuff up. In fact, you must not make this stuff up on your own. In fact, Jesus wants you to worship. Jesus wants you to pray and he came to teach both. Because, well, what's the title of our series? He's the one. Look at this in our passage today. Look at your Bibles. Look at Luke 11.1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, 
Now, straight away realise that there must have been something, or there's clearly something different or significant or compelling about the way that Jesus prayed, because immediately his disciples want him to teach them to do the same. And, and I, think, I, I think we can sort of resonate with this a little bit. I mean, have you had that experience before? It goes for anything, really, when you see someone doing something that you also do, but they do it with greater ease or greater flair or greater effectiveness somehow, that you just want to know their secret. You know, whether it be the cover drive in cricket, you'll notice that there's no English examples up there at the minute. It might be the parallel park. See me for instruction afterwards, I've got the gift. (laughs) Or in this case, it's prayer. Where there's something so fluid and natural about the way that this person operates, you just want them to teach you. That's what's happening for the disciples in this moment after Jesus prays. And they want to understand and they want to know how he does it. And they say, teach us to pray. And notice Jesus' response here as well. You notice that unlike the cover drive or the parallel park, notice that Jesus doesn't give them techniques. You know, just, you just line up that column and you know, he doesn't give them a list of drills to go and practice. Tie a ball in the tree and, you know. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't give them techniques or drills. He gives them a sample prayer that underlines the principles of God honoring prayer. Now, this is so important. This is so important for us to recognize here today, particularly if you are a regular prayer, because Jesus is not just teaching them to pray. He's teaching us too. And by by virtue of the fact that he's teaching us how to pray, he's actually also teaching not just the principles of God-honoring prayer, he's also teaching what prayer is not. And the startling truth is that we really need to lean into is prayer is not what many people assume it is in our modern culture. Prayer is not the way that many people think about it or use it. And to be honest, God is not honoured by the way that many people in our day and age praise, uh, pray. Now, that is an alarming statement. That one ought to get us leaning in a little closer. In fact, I want us to read the sample prayer that Jesus taught his followers in Luke 11 too. It will be familiar to most of us. Uh, and though Murray mentioned it, uh, Luke records a simplified version of it to the one that Matthew writes down in Matthew 6. But let's Notice the principles of prayer. Look at it there in Luke 11 too. Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, I want us to actually pick apart this a little bit. I want us to drill down into the principles of Jesus' prayer I want to do that in a minute, but I want to first notice something about what God-honoring prayer is not. Contrary to popular belief among the irreligious and possibly amongst either new or maybe spiritually malnourished Christians, popular to the belief, Christian prayer is not a wish register. It's not a spiritualized shopping shopping list of things that I want God to deliver on. In fact, did you notice prayer is not first about us at all? Did you notice that in the very first instance? It's first about God, who is Father. It's about God, the glory of whose name and whose kingdom priorities are the first on the list of God-honoring prayer. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. It just puts pay to the idea that, that this is a spiritual shopping list. Prayer is not a, a spirit. It's not about us first at all. It's about God. It's not a wish register of things I think I need and I think God should focus on. In fact, quite the opposite. It's first 
about God. That's a common misconception. The second thing prayer is not, it's not a spiritual backstop or a safety valve to be used only in the case of emergencies. Sadly, this is how many Christian people use prayer, do we realize? We use it to uh, overlooking the daily privilege of communing with the God of the universe, of the privilege of being able to speak as a child to a father and express all manner of thoughts and fears and trials and triumphs. And instead, we treat him like a fire extinguisher. And only when I'm really desperate <laughs> do I spend solid time on my knees, head bowed in dependence before God. Do you think God is honored by such a prayer? Do you think God is honored by such an attitude to prayer? I mean, would you feel honored as a parent if the only time your child rang to call you, or to speak to you rather, was to get you to help him out of trouble again? Would you feel honored or valued as a friend if the only contact you had with those others who professed to be your friends was when they needed you to spring them out of a pickle? And yet people, many people, many people treat God and prayer with that kind of attitude. Now, if that is you, by the way, don't let that stop you praying. Don't let that put you off prayer forever. Just because you've realized somehow that you've been a hypocrite. You have been. So have I. Instead of actually just abandoning the notion of prayer, rather let it change the way we start prayer each time. Rather let it change the way that we approach God, confessing first our inattention to God, if that's been the case. And asking not just for help in the present crisis, but help in the attitude of our hearts so that we wouldn't run to him just in the emergency moments. Isn't that a better prayer to pray? In fact, this is one of the principles of prayer that Jesus makes so plain. Give us each day our daily bread. Did you notice he doesn't say there, give us each day our monthly bread or even our weekly bread? He says, give us today our daily bread. Enough for today. It's provision enough to see me through the next 24 hours, but not so much that I might forget my dependence on you tomorrow. That's God honoring prayer. A daily awareness, a daily expression a daily thanks of our dependence on him. Is that your attitude to prayer? It should be. Pray it would be. Not just an emergency backstop or a safety valve. That's not what it is. The third thing that God-honoring prayer is not, is it's not a magic password. It's not a mystical incantation. It's not the means of hitting some sort of spiritual override in life or the way to unlock some sort of uh, spiritual storehouses of blessings personally. That's not what it's about. And I've mentioned this many times before. Prayer is not that name it, claim it kind of routine, often called the, uh, the word of faith movement, where people are taught things that basically fly in the face of Scripture. I mean, here, here, here's how it's often taught. Whether explicitly or implicitly, it often goes something like this. Premise one, God desires for all Christians to live happy, healthy, and wealthy lives. That's taken as a given. Two, individuals have God-given power to speak desires into reality through faith and prayer. Therefore, three, if you are unhappy, struggling, sick, or poor, these are evidence of the lack of faith or the lack of prayer or at least evidence of your poor application of both. That's how that teaching goes. Now, do you see the insidiousness of that thinking? Do you realize how anti-biblical that is, even at a glance? I mean, if that's true, Jesus obviously had a huge faith problem. And his prayer life must have sucked royal because he lived poor, nomadic lifestyle, was eventually falsely accused, tortured and murdered. 
What a spiritual weakling he must have been. What a puny prayer life he must have. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And the apostles too, clearly rubbish faith, no idea about prayer by that measure, no idea at all because all but one of those died martyrs' deaths. Paul, ridiculed, rejected by their fellow countrymen, and the one apostle who wasn't actually successfully killed, John, well, they boiled him in oil, and when they didn't kill him, they exiled him to Patmos, where he happened to write Revelation. (laughs) But if you were to believe or accept or even tolerate that teaching of that word of faith movement, you'd be forced to see him as a faithless fraud, a lightweight who didn't know the secret of special prayer and suffered as a result. But that's garbage. It's not true. It's not what prayer is. It's not a spiritual override mechanism. It's not a mystical power to speak your desires into reality. In fact, Matthew's recording of this prayer, of the Lord's Prayer, makes it abundantly clear. Matthew 6.10 says, Your will be done. Not my will be done. Your will be done. Your being God. God's will be done. And notice it's exactly the way that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's arrested. Your will be, not my will, your will be done. So if prayer is not first about us, if it's not a spiritual shopping list, if it's not an emergency backstop, if it's not a magic formula, then what is it? What are the principles of prayer that are made ultra clear in the sample prayer that Jesus taught his followers? I read a cracking little um, semi-poetic, if you like, breakdown of the Lord's Prayer, which I think is very helpful in this regard. There's lots of different versions of this online. But let me walk you through a reflection by a guy named M.W. Gass, two S's, titled, Can I Say the Lord's Prayer? And ask yourself the same questions that are sort of implied by this reflection. Read it with me. It should be up on the screen. Yeah, here it is. I'm going to read it line by line and add a little bit of comment. He says this. He says, I cannot say our if I live in a watertight spiritual compartment, if I think a special place in heaven is reserved for my denomination. In other words, your Christianity is not a solo event. It's a team sport. There's no space for arrogance. There's no space for an attitude of individualism. If you're a Christian, you should be in community with other Christians, else you can't utter the very first word of Jesus' prayer with integrity. Ow. Second line, I cannot say father if I do not demonstrate the relationship, this relationship, in my daily life. If he's father, that makes us his children. So do we live in such a way, this uh, obedient rather, dependent, recognizing his fatherly care and wisdom above our own? I cannot say which art in heaven if I am so occupied with the earth that I am laying up no treasure there. Friends, do we spend time reflecting on the fact that earth is not our final destination? This is a temporary residence. We are refugees, we are aliens passing through. There's no pockets in a shroud and there's no luggage racks on a hearse. I cannot say thy kingdom come if I'm not doing all in my power to hasten its coming. I will deal with that one. I'm going to load that in one with one down the road. Or this one. I cannot say thy will be done if I'm questioning, resentful or disobedient to his will for my life. You know, the truth of that is that there is nothing that you have or will experience that is outside of God's purpose and will for your life. It's an outstanding statement. doesn't mean that everything will be pleasant or easy. doesn't mean that everything will be fair. There is sin against us. But rather, this forces us to see trusting God's greater wisdom is not a negotiable. There's no space for resentment 
or defiance either. God, if he is God, his will will be done and I can trust him. I cannot say on earth as it is in heaven if I'm not prepared to devote my life here to his service. This is what I want to join with the kingdom come stuff. Can we pray this having giving no thought or consideration to how uh, to actively prioritize God's kingdom purposes in the way that I live here and now? And I don't think Jesus is talking about fluffing people's pillows or to put it, you know, I love a good analogy. It's not about rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic. We're not talking about a social gospel here that makes people comfortable on their way to judgment and hell. That's the social gospel. Just fluff people's pillows. Just rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. The the boat's going down as long as you're comfortable on the way down. No! He's talking here about devoting your life to seeing people saved from judgment and hell by helping them into the lifeboat, which is Jesus. Can we pray that if we think give no consideration or thought to how to actively prioritize that? I cannot say give us this day our daily bread if I'm living on past experience or if I am an under-the-counter shopper. I don't know what he means by an under-the-counter shopper. Not a clue. Anyone? Not a nah, Nothing. So it sounds like something under, illicit. You know, the under-the-counter often sort of denotes some sort of illegality or something like that, I'm thinking. So again, let me reinforce just here the daily dependence of God honoring prayer who doesn't seek to gain things illicitly or illegally, who doesn't think that he needs to store up riches in abundance because God's provision enough. A day, sorry, God's provision daily is enough. I cannot say forgive us our trespasses if we, uh, as we forgive those that trespass against us if I harbor a grudge against anyone. That's fairly self-explanatory. That is not hard to understand. It is difficult to apply. Yeah? How can I expect forgiveness at the same time as withholding it from others? If I do that, it betrays a critical misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. You know what forgiveness is? It is a willingness to excuse the inexcusable. That's what you're asking for when you ask for forgiveness. It's why we call it mercy, because it cannot be achieved or demanded or expected. It can be asked for. I cannot say deliver us from evil if I'm not prepared. Oh, sorry. I missed one. I cannot uh, cannot say lead us not into temptation if I deliberately place myself or remain in a position where I'm likely to be tempted. Now, we've talked about this before. Uh, I think it was a Scottish phrase. I can't quite remember. That little line that says, He who would not enter sin's room, then let him not sit at temptation's door. The question here is, do you self-sabotage? Do you loiter around people and places that you know will lead nowhere worth going? How can we say, let us not into temptation if I just keep flirting, if I just keep loitering? I cannot say deliver us from evil if I'm not prepared to fight in the spiritual realm with the weapon of prayer. And is this not exactly what Jesus is calling us to do here right now? And then he finishes off to say this prayer, honestly, will cost everything. Look it up. Write out the Lord's Prayer line by line. Write an example of what it might look like this week to live in a way with integrity that actually honors and matches and mirrors this prayer that, God, uh, that Jesus gave us. And then ask God to move you in such a way that you would. It is a privilege to pray this prayer. Now, there's two more principles of prayer that Jesus points out in this passage after the sample prayer itself. They're there in your outline, and they're the principle of boldness in prayer and also the faithfulness 
of God in prayer. Look at the principle of boldness first, because Jesus encourages us to be bold in prayer. Now, I think that sounds a little odd at first, doesn't it? Boldness is one of those words that gets a bit of a bad rap. I mean, if you describe someone as bold, if you say, well, that's a bold opinion, or that's a bold haircut, I think that's out of Darcy Harlan's personal collection. <laughs> Maybe a second cousin? I don't know. <laughs> I think it looks like you, Darcy, anyways. <laughs> Jesus says something positive about the boldness in prayer. And it's there in the illustration that Jesus gave straight after the prayer. It's a fictional but relatable scenario. He says a friend knocks on the door, midnight asking for help to feed a weary traveller who's just arrived at his house. Jesus says in in chapter 11, verse 8, he says, He says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness. Oh, I did it again. Uh, boldness. So what did the NIV one say here? It was like, um, I know this was a different word to the NIV I was using. Because of his, someone help me out. Shameless audacity. Thank you. Boldness. Shameless audacity. Because of his shameless audacity, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. If I can put that into a sort of a modern frame of reference, if your phone rings at 2 a.m. and you look at the screen and you see it's a friend calling, you won't answer the phone to ask how their day was or chat about the weather or talk about the local sports team. What I mean is you won't answer that phone call just because it's your friend, but you won't ignore the call either. Why not? Now, you'll answer it. You'll answer it expecting that there is some urgent need of help and you'll answer it willing to help in any way necessary because a genuine friend does not call at 2am for no reason. It's a very bold thing to do. It's very shamelessly audacious. It's extremely inconvenient time to phone and a friend will only do that when it is necessary. Now, are we bold like that in prayer? Not bothering God with trite or selfish issues, but bold to ask him for huge things on big issues, issues that really matter and issues where we realize our only hope is to ask him who can really help. It's not the please God, don't let it rain on my wedding day kind of prayer. It's the please God, have mercy on our nation's leaders kind of prayer. Please God, may they not govern our states or our country as though they are the final arbiters of good and right, but that they might govern with integrity as those who first understand that they are under authority, your authority, and as such they are accountable to you first for their governance. And therefore on the issues of abortion or euthanasia or the so-called Change and Suppression Act, where let's be honest, is really just aimed at outlawing and suppressing public Christianity, Lord, act to change our leaders' hearts so they wouldn't govern to make decisions be popular or to satisfy the longings of corrupt hearts and desires, but they would honour to govern, uh, sorry, govern to honour you to protect your people, to administer justice as you see it as a first priority. Isn't that a bold prayer? Isn't it a necessary prayer? Isn't it the kind of prayer that we have no way of solving or answering ourselves? Isn't it therefore the kind of bold prayer that Jesus is calling Christians to pray? Things that really matter. Friends, if you are a Christian here today, make it your prayer this week. Tune into the things that are happening in our town or in our state or in our country or in our world. Choose one. Tune in and spend time boldly asking God to act in ways that you can't even imagine so that his name might be hallowed, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, can I get an amen to that one? 
And once you've done that, then remember the final principle of prayer that Jesus sets down here in this passage. And it's not just to encourage people to be bold in prayer, but it's also to rest assured in God's faithfulness to answer prayers in ways that he sees fit, in ways that underline his superior wisdom, his superior care, his sovereign control. Because popular to the country song, was it, uh, who was it, Garth Brooks? Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Wrong, Garth, if it was you. You know, there's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. It's just that sometimes, for reasons best known, or perhaps reasons only known to God, that he answers prayer with a firm no. It's an answered prayer. Or sometimes he answers prayer with a not now. And even when he does, he's still expressing his fatherly care for you and you should absolutely keep trusting him. In fact, look at how Jesus explains this. Verse 9 of our passage today. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Sorry, I missed one, didn't I? Ask and it will be given. Knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you'll find. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. So Jesus is reinforcing again the boldness of prayer and the guarantee of God's faithfulness to answer. But before you treat it like Willy Wonka's golden ticket, notice it's not a guarantee that prayer will be answered in the way that you think best. It's a guarantee that God is faithful to answer prayers in the way that he knows is best, in the ways that are really good for his people. And did you hear how Jesus underlines this fact? Verse 11. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? The obvious answer, no father would do that. Why not? Because it's, a snake is not a good, loving answer to that request. Verse 12, or if he asks for an egg, who will give him a scorpion? The answer again is, no father in his right mind will give him a scorpion because a scorpion wouldn't be good for his son. Verse 13, Jesus continues, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your how much more will your heavenly Father, will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And the answer again is obvious. A, fatherly heaven, a, a heavenly Father, rather, who is not evil, but who is holy, righteous and good, can be much more trusted to answer our prayers for our good even the boldest of prayers possible for his spirit to so indwell us, to so unite us to Jesus, that he might adopt us to be his forgiven children and to make us heirs of of his eternal kingdom. Is there a bolder prayer you could possibly pray? Is there a bolder prayer you could possibly pray than to ask the God of the universe to forgive that which is inexcusable in you, to have mercy on you and not just put you back to square one, but actually adopt you as his forgiven child? and make you an heir of his eternal kingdom? Is there a bolder prayer you could pray? Have you personally ever prayed it? Have you ever asked God that bold request? See, if you're not a Christian here today, that's what you should be doing. That's the prayer to pray. And he's never dished out a scorpion yet. And no answer of God's in, in, in response to that prayer will ever be a snake but he answers the prayers of people humble enough to trust him. He he is faithful to answer in ways that are genuinely best for them, even when they don't realize it. Whatever the cost, whatever the hardship, whatever the pain, 
whatever you deem necessary, Lord, give me that with your Holy Spirit to lead and guide me faithfully through it, trusting in Christ that I might see your name hallowed and your kingdom come and a people ready to meet you. Friends, are you ready and willing to pray like that? Boldly, trusting in God's faithfulness, putting his kingdom priorities first. See, Jesus is the one and he wants you to pray and he's taught us how to do it. I'm going to ask Murray, he's going to come up and he's going to lead us first in the Lord's Prayer and lead us in prayer about other things as well.